This show is brought to you by the North Face. Now, the North Face have been my sponsors for the last eight or nine years, and I'm really proud to be involved with this fantastic outdoor brand. Now, they've been in the outdoor industry for over 50 years, and they are the premier supplier of authentic, innovative, and technologically advanced exploration apparel. For your footwear, equipment, accessories, they've got the best stuff. Now, their lightweight and weather-resistant flight series running gear is my absolute favorite. So, if if you're into trail running, if you're into desert running, if you're into just exploring our mountains, then these, this is the go-to gear. And it's designed to endure, engineered to help you through the heat, through heavy downpours, or whatever else comes your way so that you can run no matter what, every day, any weather, any terrain, and never stop exploring. If you'd like to check out their whole range, go to thenorthface.co.nz. <laughs> Welcome Welcome. to Pushing the Limits, the podcast that gets deep into the psyche of extraordinary achievers across all genres, cutting to the chase to unlock the secrets of their success, their achievement, philosophies, and motivations. Join us in the quest to find out what makes the movers and shakers of our world tick and what gems of wisdom we can learn from them. Now, over to your host, Lisa Tamati. Well, hi, everybody. It's Lisa Tamani here at Pushing the Limits, and welcome back to the show. If you're a new listener, thank you so much for stopping by, and if you're a returning listener, it's fantastic to have you back again. Um, this week, I've got something a little bit different for you. I've got uh, an interview with my mum, and, and you might think, what the heck's your mum doing on the podcast? Well, um, those who know me and those who have listened to the show uh, previously will know that I've been on one hell of a journey with my mum in the last two and a bit years. Um, she had an aneurysm. Uh, which is a bleed in the brain and a massive stroke. And what this, uh, when this happened, she was, well, they didn't think she would survive. The the brain damage was so huge. The, the, the amount of blood loss into the brain was massive. And we were in dire, dire straits with her. She was taken through to Wellington Hospital. Um, it took them 18 hours to get her into surgery, which is a catastrophe. It was a a big medical blunder. Uh, when they first arrived in the emergency, um, the ambulance officer had said to the doctor, he thinks it's a CVA or a, a brain uh, stroke or, or something of that nature. The doctor ignored him and left her in the emergency for six hours and just said, you've got a migraine. And we didn't know what the hell at that stage, you know, we didn't know anything of what was going on. We just knew that she'd collapsed on the floor, that the, the headaches that she was having were off the scale. She'd never experienced anything like this. And we were absolutely terrified. And this guy just ignored us for a whole six hours. She actually had a second bleed in front of the doctor's eyes and he still ignored it. What actually happened then was that I got a friend of mine uh, who's a paramedic, uh, Megan Stewart, who you know I owe mum's life to really. Um, she came up to the hospital. I said, you've got to kick some ass. They're not taking us seriously. They're treating her like a neurotic old woman and uh, saying she's got a migraine. I know this isn't a migraine. I don't know what she has. And Megan said immediately, I think it's a stroke. So he, she convinced the doctor to do a CT scan. So after six hours of waiting around in there, he eventually uh, uh, ordered a CT scan. And what came back was massive, massive uh, bleeding in the brain, blood right throughout the brain. And then they went into, you know, panic mode, sort of, so, so to speak, and started the ball rolling. We now, now we had to get her down through to Wellington. Um, and we had to get an air ambulance. Um, and because she was an older adult, she got bumped to the bottom of the list. Um, they had um, a few younger patients that had to be dealt with. So it was 18 hours 
before she got down to Wellington for the surgery. At that time, I sent my, my family down in the car driving um, that we didn't know whether she was going to survive. The doctors weren't looking very happy at that stage. Um, and I stayed by her side and accompanied her down in the ambulance. And she arrived into the Wellington Hospital at one in the morning and they went straight into surgery and put a stent into her brain, uh, which was to drain the, the blood. And, of course, at that stage I had no idea what an aneurysm was really, what it meant, what the implications were, what what sort of a journey this would send us down. At that stage we just knew that we were fighting for a life. The surgeons did an amazing job. They um, they ended up a couple of days later doing what they call a partial coiling operation, which is where they go up through the, the arteries uh, in the leg, right up through to the brain, and put in a tiny coil to stop the bleeding. Now, the aneurysm was so big that they could not block the whole area of this, uh, this aneurysm. So they said, we either go and we chop straight into her brain, uh, and we put a clamp on it, but she's got about a 50% dying uh, chance of dying right then and there on the table. Or we do this other operation, but we can't do a whole coiling and she'll have to have a second operation uh, in a few weeks' time when we've tried to stabilise her and this could blow still at any time. So those were the two alternatives we had and we went with that option. Uh, and then we spent the next month in and out of ICU um, fighting for her life as she... Uh, the inflammation in her brain. So when you have a bleed in the brain, they have what's vas what's called vasospasms, which can happen for the next 21 days, which without getting too technical, it's the brain has spasms due to the fact that blood is present. And when that happens, you lose a different part of your brain. And so she was having these spasms and we didn't know every time when she went into one of these spasms and lost consciousness and went into a coma, what she was going to come out with when she came out, if she came out. Each time she went down, it was, you know, a chance that she wouldn't come back out at all. And if she did, that she would have more and more brain damage. So this went on for weeks on end, and it was the most horrific time in my life. And we, I, I just went into overdrive trying to learn everything I possibly could to help her. I'd, after that real balls up with the medical world in the very, very beginning, I was hyper vigilant on everything they was doing. I was grilling them all the time. I was an absolute pain in the ass to the doctors and I make no apology to that because I needed to understand every drug that they were putting into her. Eventually they put her into the ICU unit when she went down into a deep coma and that was only days after the operation. She should have been there earlier and of course it's all about money. It costs a lot of money to put someone in the ICU. And only when she looked like she was dying did they actually put her in the ICU. When they did, then I realised the level of care that is actually available uh, if they wanted to do it. And there, they they were amazing. 24-7 care, right around the clock. One nurse per patient. Um, they had drugs that the other clinics or the other wards couldn't administer. And these were things that could stop the vasospasms. So why the heck she wasn't in there earlier, I don't know. But do, I want to let mum come to word in a minute um, and just tell a little bit about her journey because it's been uh, the most amazing, epic journey. The, she spent three months in hospital in total, um, two of those up here in New Plymouth and the other in, in Wellington, and they, you know, she was not making improvements. In fact, she started to go backwards when she was up here in, in New Plymouth because she was taken off oxygen. And that started, my mind started to think about oxygen. Okay, why is she going backwards and oxygen delivery and I came up with a, a, a hypothesis that I thought she had sleep apnea and that she wasn't breathing at night so 
the doctors ignored me once again and I went over the top of the doctors and got an external consultant who came into the hospital and did a, a sleep apnea test on her and it came back with severe sleep apnea. She had chainstoke breathing. And once again, I was just ratified in the fact that I'd really pushed for that against. I got into trouble with the doctors for bringing in an outside consultant, but when they found out that she did have severe sleep apnea, um, that was a crucial part of her turnaround because she started to have, she was put on this machine and now apparently up at the hospital they test stroke patients now for sleep apnea because this is something that happens very commonly but it wasn't part of the standard protocol back then so then I went into overdrive and trying to find out what else could help with her and oxygen um, came to mind again with hyperbaric oxygen therapy which is something that I discovered on the internet by studying uh, a Dr. Harch in America who was the world's leading expert in this type of medicine. And I thought this is a chance for her to maybe recover somewhat. Um, they were having amazing success with it overseas. It wasn't used in New Zealand for brain injury, but I decided that I wasn't going to wait for the clinical trials, which would take another 60 years probably. Um, I was going to give it a go if I could find her access. So I studied hyperbaric oxygen therapy medicine for the next four months. I worked out her protocols. I spoke to the doctor in America. I visited other clinics that were operating in New Zealand because there are a number of uh, mild hyperbaric oxygen therapy clinics operating here. And it's an incredible therapy. And before I tell you a little bit more about that, I'd like to let my mum, who's sitting here patiently, come to word a little bit. <laughs> so welcome to the show, mummy. How are you feeling today? <laughs> Absolutely blown. <laughs> Absolutely blown hearing the story. Yes. Of course, you weren't really here for no, the story. I wasn't there for the story, so, so you... I didn't know any of it. Yeah. And so it's quite astounding to me to hear all that. Yeah, even though you have heard me tell you, you yeah. know, a little bit of what what went on and, and the, the dramas that we went through as a family trying to, to save you, you have absolutely no memory of that no, entire... None, none, of, none at all. None for the week prior, basically, to... to when, so, you know, when were your first memories that, you know, like you can remember coming back? I mean, just to let the, the listeners know... At the beginning, what did you have? I mean, you've heard me tell you, what what couldn't you do? I couldn't really do anything very much. Um, didn't speak. You couldn't. You had no memory. No. You didn't know I was your daughter. No. No. You had no ability to control any functions in your body. Basically, no. you no. Um, you couldn't even chew properly. We'd put food in your mouth and it would just sit there. That's one instinct that I have regained, <laughs> and it's such a shame that I did. <laughs> You've got your taste back for food. Uh, yeah, and uh, <laughs> we knew you were getting better when you started to want to eat again. <laughs> the big battle, isn't it, Mark? No, it's always a battle. It's always a battle. The weight, the weight problem. But for months on end, you weren't able to. Or it would take us hours to feed you. It would take, uh, you know, the, the amount of time we just spent teaching you to find your mouth with your hand <laughs> um, and all these little things which we laugh about now. So what were your very first memories of waking up, basically, from this wherever you were in this abyss, this black void of we don't know where you were for, no. for many, many months? I really, I really don't know. I had no recollections at all. And... I just remember being home and coming to, but I don't remember exactly. 
It's so, all a bit wishy-washy. It's very so I wishy-washy. Think, I think the first memory you said to me was actually in the hyperbaric oxygen chamber. Yeah. Um, so we were having, we I managed to get her access to a hyperbaric oxygen chamber um, with some dear friends of ours who allowed us to use theirs. They were um, into diving and they had one. And we had signed medical waivers and all this sort of stuff, get signed off from the neurosurgeon. I went through a hell of a lot of palaver to get you access to all this. And you were in such a fragile state at that stage. Everyone thought I was completely bonkers because they hadn't done the study that I'd done. And they hadn't known you since you were a, a baby to know that you are bonkers. I am bonkers. I am bonkers. Thanks, Mum, for that vote of confidence. Um, but lucky I'm bonkers because yes. um, that hyperbaric oxygen therapy, as you said, that was one of the first memories you have. And the yeah. reason for that is that the oxygen mm. and the pressure that you are under, which means that you hyper-oxygenate the body when you're under um, in a hyperbaric oxygen chamber, basically what happens is you're put under pressure. It's equivalent of being underwater. So at sea level, we are at one atmosphere. And we would take you down to one and a half atmospheres, which was what was ideal for brain injury they for wounds and, and diabetic wounds and gangrene and stuff they take you down to two or even two and a half or even three atmospheres but for brain injury that was the protocol 1.5 atmospheres so that's one and a half times the amount of pressure on your entire body uh, while you're in this chamber now what we do then is we put them on an oxygen mask so that we're giving them uh, well in that case we're giving them pure 100% medical grade oxygen and when you do that, you hyper-oxygenate the body. So the molecules of the oxygen are actually compressed. So it's a bit like a can of Coke. When you release the can of Coke, you open it, what happens? It fizzes. It fizzes. All the bubbles come out yeah. and they expand, right? So that because that can is under pressure. Same thing in a hyperbaric. So you're actually going the other way. You're compressing those oxygen molecules so that they dissolve into the plasma of the blood. And so the the body is no longer just, at sea level, the oxygen is attached to your hemoglobin. So you can only take so much amount of oxygen into the body. When you go down to one and a half atmospheres, you can take up to seven times the amount of oxygen because it's dissolved into the plasma. And so what this does is it means that the oxygen molecules are also smaller and it can permeate through the blood-brain barrier. Um, so in mum's case, this could get, in other words, we could get oxygen, which is the fuel of every cell, delivered through the blood-brain barrier to these damaged cells. And that, in, in layman's terms, that's what we, you know, what we were hoping to achieve with this hyperbaric. And then being able to get those cells back into life. So you had cells that were dead from the brain damage. And then you had cells around that area called the ischemic penumbra, without getting too scientific, that were right around, around that area that are damaged but not working. So they're still alive, but they're not firing. And those are the ones that we've been able to get back on board. So I put you through a hell of a lot of hyperbaric uh, sessions. Now tell the, the viewers a little bit about what the hyperbaric is like. It's... Um... You don't, no, you don't feel any pain. It's just got to be very patient. <laughs> you have to lie in this. Well, there's two levels. There's, there's the medical grade facilities and then there's what they call mild hyperbaric. So I actually went and after a while I bought a mild hyperbaric uh, chamber, which is 1.5, which we've got here in the lounge at the moment. What's that one like to be in? It's fine. It's Your biggest problem is some boredom. Yeah. But 
you can cope with that. With what about claustrophobia? Do you get claustrophobic I in it? Don't, and and just as well because you wouldn't want to be suffering from claustrophobia. It is a it is a bit of one of the problems, isn't it? Is claustrophobia? Yeah. For some people, it's it's a little bit like being in a pup tent, and you have got a window to the outside. And you're in there for a good hour and a half, and you're allowed to take your iPad and you, there with you. You listen to podcasts and so on, don't you? I do. Yeah, I do. My education is continuing. It's continuing, yes. It's part of her rehabilitation process. So, Mum, how has this, I mean, tell the people where you are today. Where, like, how far have you come? I mean, you're obviously speaking again. You're obviously an intelligent woman again. <laughs> well, I don't know where you were when you were gone. No, I don't know where I was either. Can you do everything again now? Is I, life back to complete normal or is it still... No, no, it's back to complete normal most of the time. Yeah, most of the time. Uh, yeah. So there's still some areas where you struggle. Um, so it's a bit like you said to me the other day, I can do everything, but it takes me twice as long. Oh, that's, yes, that's it. And, and a lot more effort, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, a lot of effort required to put my shoes on. Yeah, put your shoes on, put your socks on, yeah. going to the loo, getting dressed, all of those things that we take for granted take you a lot longer. A lot longer and they're a lot more difficult. You are now able to walk. Yeah, I can walk slowly, yep. but I can walk. I've just done a walk with Cyril this morning and we've climbed the hill behind our house. Which is very steep. Yes, <laughs> and gritty. Yeah. And then I walked to the corner yep. and then down to the next corner. So round the, round the block, basically. The block, yeah. yeah. So you can, you can sort of you know walk for a good kilometre now. Yeah. Uh, very slowly. Yeah. Um, it takes you a lot longer, obviously, than other people to to do that distance. And you are working on so many levels, aren't you? When you are trying to do something like walk, it's yeah. exhausting for you. Not like, from a cardio point of view. What is exhausting for you? My brain. Yeah. So you're having to. Overdrive. You're having to focus on a hundred things that we do yeah. automatically. Yeah. So when you're all striding around doing your own thing, I'm still working out how to do that and how to balance. How to balance. How to how to move. Yeah. So every single movement pattern I had to teach you and ingrain over and over a thousand million billion times to get you to integrate that into your uh, your subconscious again because you right. lost all those movement patterns. So, yeah. for example, getting mum to sit in the car takes a lot of coordination. You have to, you know, we've, we've done it many different ways. And, of course, I'm not a physio. I've, I've just had to work out what are the movement patterns or sitting into a chair, how you have to turn right around in front of the seat, put one hand down, locate that chair, Bend yourself forward, keep your balance, bend your knees, keep your back straight, all those sort of things to get down into the chair. How do you get back up into the chair? I remember in the beginning, you know, we had, or this was probably eight or nine months into your rehab, we had you sitting on the bed and I've got a video of you trying to get up and you just didn't quite, you don't know what muscles to engage. To, you, so you're, you're, you're trying to bounce and you're just not going anywhere and Neither of us knew at that stage whether you would ever get any of that back again. And the doctor said, no, like you won't because she's 76 years old now or 75 at the time. How the hell are you going to teach her spatial awareness of where her body is in space? Um, you know, huge, huge rehabilitation journey. Um, but we've done it. We have. 
And that one of the big keys to that process was, apart from thousands and thousands of hours of repetition, was having uh, parallel bars. Yeah. So uh, we, we, were, we were gifted those bars, weren't we? We were. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you to Amy Roper and her family. Her dad had them. And then, uh, unfortunately, he passed away, and they donated them to our family, which was wonderful, kind, and that yeah. was a huge part of your rehab. And I didn't know that at the time that they were going to be so pivotal. But that enabled you in a safe environment to be able to hold the bars, and that's where we learnt, started to learn to walk again. Yeah. You actually started to be able to, I had to hold you, and you had your arms on the bars, but you had started to take one or two steps along there, and slowly but surely we built that up day in, day out. Now, we spend a, about a good hour on the parallel bars every day. What sort of exercises we do, do we do? Uh, you're a ballerina, basically, aren't you? <laughs> I have to lift my leg and point my toes and <laughs> keep, the chin up. keep my chin up. Squats. And do squats. Lisa yep. says every five minutes, she says, keep your head up, keep your head up. <laughs> She keeps dropping her head because she, visually it's very important for her to locate her feet. Now I need to train her brain to instinctively know where her feet are so that when she's walking she has her eyes up and is aware of her surroundings. So the biggest, one of the biggest challenges we're facing right now is that she can walk but she's completely unaware of anything or anybody around her. She's concentrating on so many levels and that of course is very dangerous when you're in a public environment with people in a mall or worse or you know around cars and things like that so you're still not at that 100% independent stage I still you know if I send you into a supermarket I'm sort of usually shadowing you about 50 meters behind just to make sure you don't get knocked over or because your awareness is a little bit when you're walking when you're sitting you have no problems you're completely um, normal yeah so it's a really bizarre thing so you can actually Tell them about your biggest success today. What was the biggest mo moment for you in your recovery? I've got my driver's license back. <laughs> your full, fully-fledged driver's license yes. back. And they didn't just give it back to you, did they? No. I had to go right through the tests again and um, reset the whole thing. Yep. And I did it again and again and again, practicing. <laughs> yep. Months of practicing. But I got it. You got and it. And I did it. And I didn't give up. And perseverance. And we failed, actually, the first test, didn't yes, we? we? Did. Um, and I was devastated. I was upset and crying. And you were like, oh, no, oh, well, we'll just do it again. <laughs> and, Which is what we did. And you just didn't let that phase you. you know? no. And 76, just for anybody going through their driver's license and being tested by the, the driving instructor and all of that jazz, is pretty damn scary, isn't it? Yeah, it is a bit. But, well, I was scared, but I knew that it was really important that I get it. Absolutely, absolutely. And and, uh, and how, what was the reaction of my brothers and dad and stuff when I started to teach you to drive? Oh, they just thought you were, there goes Lisa on another nutty, <laughs> nutty venture. Another nut. What on earth is she doing? She's going to kill her, you know. Um, and, you know, we, we started off in a closed car park and um, avoiding, you know, without any cars in it. And we started to, as soon as I put mum behind the wheel, and, and honestly, my brother thought you were absolute looney tunes. She's never going to drive. Why are you even bothering? To me, it was a matter of her feeling in control of her life and having her independence back. And I wasn't sure at that stage whether she would ever actually get her full license back, but I was determined to give her that feeling of progress, that feeling of control of her own destiny that driving gives you. 
because you struggled so much with walking and I'm being bossed around all day by people telling you to lift this, do that, go here, sit there. Um, this was one place that you could be independent and have control of the wheel and yeah. feel like a normal human being yeah, again. How I important did. was that? It was very, very important. The emotional being in control and knowing that what I was doing was going to get me there. Yeah, and just as soon as you got behind the wheel... Something clicked. I remember you just started to do things automatically again. So there was some part of your brain that was still had that automatic, which we didn't have in the in the walking. But as far as the driving was concerned, because you've driven since you were fifteen years old, you started back into that automatic mode. And I, I, dis I discovered that you actually had that ability still in there, and we just had to practice it because you hadn't been in a car for a year and a half, and it actually came back relatively quickly. Uh, you know, well, it still took us eight or nine months to get to the full license stage. But there was that self-belief. And the very first time that I put you behind the wheel, I knew that this was absolute key to your psyche. Yeah, it was, definitely. I had always been the person that could jump in the car and go and do things, you know. I'd never been a person that waited to be looked, looked after. after. Yeah, And here I was waiting to be looked after on every level. Yeah. You know. Horrible. Yeah. Going to the toilet to Yeah. To showering. To showering. All the most personal intimate yeah. problems that, you know, you face when you have something like this. Yeah. All of that control over your whole destiny was taken away. Yeah. And this was the first step in getting it back. A very big step too. A big step, yeah. And we did it secretly because everyone yeah. just ridiculed us, eh? Yeah. Yeah. And we eventually, you know, was Highly illegal, probably. I don't know. I didn't ask. <laughs> and when we had to get back to the doctor, once we got to a level where I thought she was safe to drive, we had to go to the doctor. We had to get medical clearances. They had to say, yes, she's at pre-aneurysm levels. All her reaction tests were uh, normal. All her sight was, her vision had returned. She'd lost her peripheral vision uh, during this, um, this event. Uh, all of that came back. Uh, through the hyperbaric, I'm, I'm damn sure that's what it was. Yeah. That combined with massive amounts of functional neurology. So we were um, doing eye exercises every day, which was teaching your brain spatial awareness and everything. So you eventually got your license back. And I still won't let you out driving on your own, though, will I? <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. But, we are, well, the other day you did. You went off on your own around Oakura Village. Yeah. Yeah, and you're quite capable of it. The problem I have with mum is that when she goes to get out or park the car, that's when she struggles to even get out of the car sometimes <laughs> because of the angle that it's parked on or things like that. So we are still working towards full independence where you can say, I'm going to the supermarket to get my own groceries and I'm, you know, I'll be back in an hour. Um, we're not quite there yet at the moment um, but we are working the way. we're definitely working towards that and our goal is is 110 percent isn't it yeah so we want to be healthier than you actually were before, before. Yeah. so what other stuff that we do on a daily basis um we go to oh we go to the gym we go to the gym about five or six days a week don't yes we, we do <laughs> <laughs> and I have to do lifting weights and I have to um, do all the gym things that yeah. my family do anyway. Yeah. Um, 
And you just have to do it a bit longer and a bit I harder. Have, yeah, and, and get there a bit slower. Yeah, <laughs> you do. We're still working on the speed and stuff. So I put you on the bicycle, you're on the exercise cycle, you're on the treadmill, you've increased your speed up to three kilometers an hour now, which is like three times what we were six months ago. She goes on the elliptical, she has to work out how to get herself into and out of the machines. Um, we do some weight training. When you go through something like this, um, for, for people out there listening, you, there's so many things on so many different levels that you don't realize you, you're going to lose. Like um, you, because you haven't walked for a year and a half, you have a drop foot. So your feet, uh, your Achilles shortens and you're unable to move your ankle and your foot is dropped. And so you've, we, we're having to slowly but surely stretch that back into normal. You lose, start to lose bone density because you can't stand and you couldn't walk. You lose, of course, muscle mass, and we were very lucky. Now you've always you've always said you had you, you didn't like your legs, did you, Ma? No. You've always thought you had fat legs. Yes. <laughs> but what are we thinking about those those legs now? They're very very good. <laughs> You're very very lucky because you had yeah. very muscular legs. Yes. You had hugely muscular legs all your life. Yeah. And I've got them too. <laughs> and we didn't like them because we wanted to be skinny bunnies, didn't we? Yeah. True. And now, what do you think about those muscular legs? Oh, awesome. <laughs> you still got it. You still have enough muscle. I've still got them. You've still yeah. got enough muscle, even after not work, walking for a year and a half. Yeah. You didn't lose uh, all your muscle. And no. that, that was also partly due to the fact, I think, that I constantly stretched her, pulled her, pushed and pulled. Even when she couldn't walk, I would stick her in this walking machine and I would pull her around. And she had no balance, but I would pull and push her stuck you in a standing machine where you were locked into this machine uh, for a good hour a day, which was like torture for you because it was like being in a, in a you know, a straight jacket. But it made you stand and that helped with your bone density. And now we've just done a bone density test last week and she's off the scales high. Um, so all of these things that, that um, you know, we, we're working towards, we've gotten you off all except one medication. You've lost 35 kilos. Uh, we've still got a little bit to go, but we work every day. Do you think it's important for people who are older to have challenges? Yes, I do. And I do believe that they need they need somebody driving them. They need somebody who's got the bigger vision that can say, do this, do that. Um, turn up every day. And push you and to push. do it. Because yeah. you... You lost a little bit of your motivation um, you know, from the actual injury. It takes out, it can take out the determination and, and motivation part of the brain. So you didn't have that at the beginning. I mean, you do now. Yeah. But you would still take the odd day off, wouldn't you, if I, oh, if yes. I let you? <laughs> if she wasn't, if she went home now, I'd think, right, that's me done. I can, oh, I can relax and, for the day. <laughs> I can go and do something else. But... It doesn't. If you do that, you know that we have to be absolutely relentless, yeah. relentless day in day out. I don't care if it's your birthday, I don't care if it's Christmas, I don't care what it is. You have to train today, every yeah. single day, and that is the only way back. And being an athlete and coming from an extreme sports background, that's what's made me like that. I know that that's how I operate. I know that I can never let myself go. If I let myself go. Like during this time, I've not been able to do long distance running. I've done a lot of CrossFit and gym work and short intensity. But I can't roll out of bed and run 100Ks anymore because I, I let that go. And that was a you know conscious decision to have to do that. And that's fine. 
But when you let things go, it's a bloody long way back. It is. Um, and so when you're in a situation like this, we have to be absolutely relentless on your rehab journey. And so for me, I don't care that you're 76 years old. I don't care when you get to 96, you're still going to have goals and challenges. Yeah. And, and that's, I think it's important. That's really important. If I wake up in the morning and I haven't got a challenge to achieve today, then I am a little bit lost, you know? Exactly. Um, and I kind of have always done that. I've, you know, I've always gone to aqua aerobics or... Um, Work till you're 74. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? I've always done something. So to, to take away those goals and achievements is... Is to die. Is to die, is to let go. And this is what this is the argument that I have with doctors. Make them comfortable. Don't push them. Don't you know? People need challenges, and I don't care how old you are. Um, and I, you know, we need to feel like we're going forward. Yeah. Even if when you're old and you think we well, haven't got much forward to go on to, you know, yeah. the the future's obviously you've got a, a finite period. But let's make the most out of every single day. Let's yeah. keep our faculties going as best we can yeah. until the very last moment, and then we'll just sit down and die hopefully, and not have a horrible, you know, <laughs> this long, deterioration. deterioration. Yeah. And it's the discipline of today that actually helps you be stronger tomorrow. So yeah. you might have sore muscles today because I'm going to push you hard at the gym or you might, you know, go, oh, God, I just want a lot, you know, have a rest. And, of course, we do rest. And that rest and recovery is a big part of mum's um, rehab too. And uh, I had big arguments at the beginning where they said to me, you're an athlete, you, you're pushing her too hard. And they were right in the one in one aspect, the brain, when it's had a brain injury, needs rest and recovery. But what I found is that they would train you for two minutes and then they would leave you for the rest of the day. The way I trained you is I would train you for, two, and this is the beginning, when you only had one or two minutes focus at a time, I would train you for two minutes, but then I would give you five minutes rest. And then I would train you for another two minutes and then I'd give you another five minutes rest. And by doing that sort of a rhythm of rest, recovery, push again, rest, you know, recovery, push again, and that was slowly built your strength out. If I just let you go and said, well, your brain is, is fatigued and it needs time out, and that's all you had was time out, and just, you know, I remember the social worker at the hospital saying, you know, just give her three months of doing nothing and then see what you can do with it. You've lost everything after three months. You've lost strength. You've lost <coughs> rhythm and regularity and routines, and there's a whole lot of things if you do that. So for me, it was good to push as far as I could and then to back off. And there were times when I pushed you too hard and too fast, and I had to very quickly realize the limitations of your fatigue levels and get you back down again. You know, I took you swimming a little bit early, and that totally exhausted you. But I learned those things pretty quickly. And being an athlete, I you know, I, I know how to read the body, I know how to read your state of mind, and I pushed you to the point of just about to say, "I've had enough," and not beyond. Occasionally I'll go beyond and you tell me off. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, I didn't tell you off very often, but um, when I did, yeah, you listened. But I listened, yeah. yeah. If, you, if you've if said, no, you're pushing too hard, I, I can't do any more today or whatever, then we would back off and that yeah. would be the end of it. So, you know, like just wrapping up this interview now, like how, you know, what's your message for other people who are going through, I don't know what, it doesn't have to be aneurysm, it can be stroke, it could be brain concussion, it could be a uh, disability, it could be an accident, whatever they're facing, what challenges 
you know, what do you say to them as far as their rehab journey and to their loved ones and their family about about um, the journey? Yeah. It, the family's got to put in the the hardcore day to day grind. Yeah. It's not it's not fixed in five minutes. No. And um if they're not prepared to do that, you're not gonna make the gains. Yeah. So, so really hang I'm, in there with your loved ones. Yeah. Hang in there. Be persistent, even if they don't want to do it, push yeah. them. Yeah. And that's easier said than done. I mean, I was very lucky that you did whatever I said to do. Yeah. You never argued, you just did it. Um, you never moaned about it, and that's just because you're incredibly resilient and tough and determined. And not everybody is like that. And that's part of what I've had to come to realise when helping other people is not everyone has that drive and that will to do it. But banding together as a family was really, really important. Really, really important. Being a support. Yeah. Having that support network. And what about the actual person going through the shit? Never give up? No, you can't give up. <laughs> and you never know where you're going to get to if you no. fight. You just don't know how far. And and mostly, I think, for people who have had something like I've had, they have no idea how how far they can go. So if you haven't got someone who believes that you can do it, then it's very difficult to motivate yourself. Self, yeah, you need that driving person. And this is the thing, you know, when I when I was helping one with the rehabilitation, I had no idea whether she would come back. I had no, I had no roadmap to follow, um, and no really guidance or help. Um, we had a good physio for a while, but that was that was it. There was no other help outside of that. And so you're walking in blind faith that things are going to get better. And when you do, you don't know that you, I could have put you through all of this and nothing happened. Yeah. But the, the thing was to me, what was the alternative? The alternative was death in yeah. the rest home. Yeah. A slow, horrific death for me is, that was not an option. No. So it was either throw everything at it or, or give up. Um, I'd rather throw everything at it and fail anyway. But knowing I've done everything possible to, to get you there. You think that's a better attitude? I to do. Have? I do think it's important. I visited a friend last week who'd had a a, a stroke earlier than me, and um, her daughter was amazing, wasn't she? Yes. Yeah, and Pivotal. she's she's done very well. Yeah. Um, but she's gutsy, you know, she's, like yeah. she's never given up. She still struggles with her speech and so on, but she's independent, living independently again. Yeah. I think we're too often, we're too quick, and this is a criticism that I have in the system in the hospitals, is that if you're over 65, stick them in a rest home. That's the quick answer. It's cheaper, it's easier, but it destroys people's lives. You know, yeah. you're taking away their independence. I wanted you out of the, the, the institution as fast as I could get you, and it was a hell process to go through, and they told us we would fail, and we didn't, and we nearly, really, very nearly broke me. Um, but we got there, and now you're having a happy, full life again. I am. <laughs> and Lisa did something really crazy. She <laughs> took me on a um, a cruise, <laughs> a very short cruise, yep, four, four days four from days. Auckland to Napier. But doing what that, I realised that I can do things. Yeah, you know, there, there are things that I can do. So We find ways around the obstacles. We yeah. can get you, next next goal is to get to Sydney, get on a big plane, get to Sydney, go and see your, your nieces, have some fun, so you can still 
travel. It, it takes a lot more effort. It yeah. takes a lot more planning. Uh, it's a bit like having three kids, <laughs> getting all your gear into the car and taking you off. But we can do, do it. it. And it's very important that you involve people. What about running across the North Island? That must have been one of your first memories too. I, I did a mission last year with my husband and, and my uh, business partner, Neil. Uh, a friend of ours, Samuel Gibson, who has been on this podcast, died in a tragic accident uh, during a half marathon. And so we decided in his honour to help raise money for his charity that we would run across the North Island. At this stage, mum had only been you know, out of hospital for a few months and was still in dire straits. But you said to me at that stage, oh, I don't suppose I can ever crew for you again. And you'd always crewed for me, eh? And uh, and I thought at that moment, yep, bloody oath, you're coming. I don't know how we're going to make it happen because I have to run, you know, 50Ks a day and uh, we have to do this big gala function and raise all this money, but we're going to make it happen that you come with us and this is a dream that you wanted. So what was that like to, to be... This was you were still very sick and you probably don't have much clear memories of it, but you will have some. Uh, I definitely can remember that. You were travelling. I was travelling. I was battling the van and you were part of the crew. Part of the crew, yeah. You couldn't walk. You at had that to stage. get over your embarrassment of being looking like a dick and behaving <laughs> <laughs> badly. You know, that's that's the hard thing. So, yeah, it, yeah. Let your dignity go a little mm. bit and just go stuff it. <laughs> I want. I don't to do care it. if I'm in a wheelchair and I'm a pain in the ass to everybody else. They can bloody well look after me. I'm coming. Yeah, that's about it. You have to. You have because to. if you want to involve yourself and Samuel Gibson, our friend who, who died, you know, who was also in a wheelchair and had brittle bones disease, certainly had the most amazing, adventurous, crazy life. And that's he would have been so proud of you. Yeah, being in that, that crew and it was a really emotional journey and, and we raised $55,000 for the charity we helped another young boy with the same disease it was an epic thing I was exhausted after the end of that because I hadn't trained of course for a year <laughs> and um, it, it was it was hell looking after you and uh, we also had a caregiver Kirsty with us but um, you know I still had to do a lot of the caring stuff for you as well as run uh, it took a lot out of us but you were a part of an adventure again. And that's and what I wanted. That's what you wanted. And yeah. you, you'll be part of many other future adventures uh, yeah. as we as we get back into stuff again. Yeah. So I'm writing Mum's book at the moment, everybody. Um, we haven't got a title yet, and it's halfway through, and it's going to be out in a few months. But if you want to hear right, the real details of the story, if you want to know um, that whole journey that we went through, if you want to know the principles that I applied in her rehab journey, what I learned from where I learned those things through through the extreme sports and stuff, um, I think it's going to be well worth a read. Um, she's an incredible role model for other people um, and other older people not to give up on life just because you're older. Every single day that you have on this earth is to be treasured, eh, Mum? Yeah, it is. So... Don't keep looking, oh, well, I'm going to be dead next year. No, you've no. got to... <laughs> it's not a good attitude. It's not a good attitude. <laughs> so you've got to embrace it and go with it and enjoy. Enjoy everything that you can. There are things that you can enjoy and the things that you can't, but there's lots of things that you still can enjoy. Yeah. Like going out to lunch. Like going out to lunch because mum's hungry. She's obviously <laughs> feeling like she's hungry. All right, people, thank you so much for joining me today on the show. And I'll be uh, back again next week with another great guest. I hope you've enjoyed this uh, session with Isabel. And watch out for that book. Make sure you read it when it comes out. It's going to be an epic, 
epic book, just like she's epic. Thanks, everyone. Do you want to run faster, further, without pain and injuries? Do you want to learn how to maximize your limited training time to get the most out of yourself? If you want a PB at your next ultra marathon, or you just want to run your very first kilometer, then we can help you get there using our holistic five pillars approach. Our system includes all the pieces of the training puzzle from strength and conditioning to mobility workouts to nutrition and supplementation. And a big piece of the puzzle is mindset and motivation, as well, of course, as your run sessions and your technique drills. To find out more, download our free online run training e-course at runninghotcoaching.com. That's it for this episode of Pushing the Limits with your host, Lisa Tamati. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe and share all this goodness with your networks so we can impact more lives with positive insights and inspiring conversations. And check us out online at www.lisatamati.co.nz.